welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted to be having as our guest today, Fahas Khan QC of Three Verulam Buildings. Hello, Fahas. Hello, Geltam. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to, great to join you. It's great to have you with us. And, and as is traditional, I always introduce our guests. And in your case, I've got the added delight of welcoming you as a new QC because you took silk this year. Many congratulations, Fahaz. Richly deserved and wonderful to see. Fahaz was called to the bar in 2005 and, as I mentioned, became a QC this year and has had a stellar rise after only 17 years of call. So Fahaz has also got a very diverse and broad practice in line with Three Verulam Buildings' profile. He has a very well-trodden practice in banking, financial services, pensions, international arbitration, and a number of other areas. And we'll touch upon Fahaz's areas of practice in the course of this podcast. One of the purposes behind this podcast is that it's one of a special series that we're doing to celebrate and honour South Asian Heritage Month. And that's another reason why I'm particularly happy and proud to be speaking to Fahaz today as one of the future leaders of the English Bar. And just before I delve into the podcast, I'm going to do my best to embarrass Fahaz a touch more. I'm going to refer to a couple of quotes that have been made of Fahaz to just highlight what I've said. When Fahaz was a junior, which he was till very recently, the legal directories commented that Fahaz was, quote, one of the very best known and well-regarded juniors at the bar and is likely to become a doyen of the market in years to come. And as befits a QC, Fahaz is also a very strong advocate. And it's been said of him that he has a natural ability to read the tactical nuances surrounding a matter and also an instinctive aptitude for how a judge will approach it. So with that said, with that introduction, I'm going to delve into the podcast with Fahaz. So Fahaz, you've got a very interesting academic background because you're not a law graduate. You did history at bachelor's level and at master's level, and then you went into law. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your academic background as to why you chose history as your discipline, and then how you moved into the law? So that's a very good question, as I suspect with many of those listening who come from a Southeast Asian background. They'll, I think they'll sympathise when I say my, my parents were horrified when I told them I wanted to go to university to study an art subject study <laughs> history because it's not medicine and it's not dentistry and it's not even law, which very much ranks sort of third in those triumvirate of, of courses that people from our background are very keen that their children go and study. But nevertheless, I persuaded them that it was a good idea. And that was really because I, I had a love of history from, from when I was at school, a love I still, I still have and I spend a lot of my spare time reading, still reading history and, and listening to podcasts about history. But you know, at the time, 
I got a place to study history at Bristol, fantastic city and university, and really enjoyed it. And then went to Oxford to what I thought was commence a, a process of doing a PhD in literary and art history, modern uh, European literary and art history, focusing on D.H. Lawrence oh. and his literature and the politics and circumstances in which his literature was both made and, uh, and dispersed. So that was my great love, really. Mm-hmm. But about a year in at Oxford, I, I sort of fell out of love with academia, I suppose. And the thought of sitting in the library for four years no longer filled me with the joy that perhaps I anticipated it would. And so yeah. I left I left Oxford with a master's and came to London. And like lots of arts graduates, you sort of uh, search around for something to do, really. And that's when people started to suggest the law. I have a great friend, Ben Lynch QC at Fountain Court, who's a friend mm-hmm. from before the law. Uh, and his father, now sadly passed, Adrian Lynch QC of 11KBW, were great influences on me. And they encouraged me to consider the law and the bar in particular. And also my, my parents quite keen that, okay, if I wasn't going to become a doctor, at least I could become a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. um, and, so, and so that's how I made the, the, the change, really. And went to law school, did the law conversion and, uh, and things and happened after that, really. Fantastic. Well, I think it's always interesting to hear the background because there's more than one way, as we all know, to become a lawyer. So, And we'll come back to something you said there about some of those people who encouraged and mentored you in a minute, because that's a theme I want to pick up on with you, Fahaz. So, you know, when you decided to make the shift and you were thinking about your career. What was it in particular that excited you about the bar and becoming a barrister? The first thing I I realised when I started the law conversion, now obviously the law conversion, for anyone who's done it, will will tell you that it's not a necessarily sort of deep intellectual exercise. You're just, you're doing a sort of rough and ready course covering all the key areas. So at least you have some familiarity with the key cases and concepts before you then go on to do the LPC or, or, or the bar, as the case may be. I know they're called something different now. Yeah. But I did, even on, on that sort of rather superficial course in some respects, I did realise that I had a sort of intellectual interest in the way the law operated. And I think there's a lot to be said for the parallels between history and the process of historiographical analysis, looking back at the way in which ideas and events have unfolded, with the way we look at the law, both facts and, and legal issues and the way those, those have developed. So I immediately felt a sort of, I suppose, intellectual familiarity with and an attraction to it. But the bar itself, I have to say, was the idea of going to court and arguing cases and winning and losing. Those things really sort of struck me as a, a really interesting and potentially fascinating things to do on a day-to-day basis as a job. and. One thing I did do when I was doing the law conversion was join the Toynbee Hall Legal Advice Centre. Now, my background mm-hmm. in Whitechapel, I was born in Myland and grew up in Whitechapel when I was small. And so very familiar with the Bangladeshi community there. And Toynbee Hall, I'd always known as a place where Bengali people found refuge, legal advice, all sorts of support in the community, particularly when things weren't looking up. And so it was a good place for me to go and a, sort of learn how to be a lawyer and advocate and, and B, also to help people, really, particularly as I spoke. Now, I was completely underqualified because everyone there was 
either on the bar course or indeed junior barristers or, or associate solicitors. A lot of the big law firms sent associates there to help out. And I was someone who just started the GDL, so knew a bit about D.H. Lawrence, but nothing particularly useful. But I could speak Bengali and I could speak Sileti Bengali. And so that was really useful to them. And so that's I went there and I did some did some cases, went to the employment tribunals, even did an immigration case one. So forums where you can turn up without necessarily having a rights of audience. And I just got a real taste for, for going to court and advocacy. That's wonderful. That's 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 a wonderful story. And in fact, I'm overjoyed to know you speak Bengali because I also speak Bengali. I know there are, there are a number of dialects. My Sileti Bengali is not as good as my Shuddha Bangla, but I can certainly make do. My uh, late parents both spoke, were very familiar with many dialects of Bengali, including Sileti Bengali. And I must tell you that I've been to the, the Toynbee Hall a number of times to attend Bengali functions. So I know exactly where you mean, and I'm overjoyed to know that you're such a big part of the community and your pro bono ethic is something that also resonates with me because that's something our firm takes very seriously too. Well, look, thank you for sharing that. And then let's just talk about mentorship and sponsorship because you mentioned Adrian Lynch and his son as people who I suspect were very key mentors and remain in the case of, of Adrian's son, very important friends and mentors of yours. Are there other people who you can think of who've been part of your progress, who've really been strong mentors and sponsors of you? Yeah, so I think the first point I'd like to make is that sometimes people can influence you and inspire you from afar. So people you see doing well in the profession who perhaps you feel you have something in common with and seeing them do well, be involved in big cases, become judges, etc., you may not necessarily know them, you may not necessarily even have spoken to them, but they can nevertheless have a real influence on the way in which you sort of go about doing your job. And there are certainly people that uh, I'll put in that category. I'd say Push Saini is one of them, seeing him sort of be involved in some of the really big cases and then become a judge in QB and then appear in front of him. Hence why you may have seen him at my Silk's party recently. He's always someone who, until I, until actually I took Silk, until I appeared before him, in a case last year, I hadn't actually spoken to, but I'd always known of him and, and his sort of profile had always been quite inspirational. Other people are the Maliks, Ali and Hodge Malik. Of course, I know them very well now because we're, we're in chambers together, but that wasn't always the case. But nevertheless, I, I looked at them and, and their profile. It didn't matter that they were from, a, as it were, a typical ethnic background for the commercial bar. They were just the best at what they did or two of the best at what they did. And that was really a really important sort of marker for me, I suppose, as to what could be achieved. You know, the commercial junior looking at silks operating at the market. In terms of people who've influenced me directly, certainly people at my old set out at Temple who have been incredibly influential on me. The, the first and probably greatest influence being Richard Hitchcock, QC. He was my pupil master. I remember the first day arriving in chambers, absolutely terrified. And Richard immediately putting me at ease. I mean, he's, I don't know if you know him, he's hes just the most wonderful man and absolutely brilliant. He, he sort of, it was depressing being his pupil in a way uh, and seeing him as a junior over the years because he can just do things in court, express himself in a way with a fluency and a, a, and a vitality, which is just 
absolutely unique and to him and, and comes completely naturally. In other words, it's not something that, that I could learn or anyone could, could really be taught. And so it's both inspirational, but also slightly depressing in that respect, um, because I know I'll never be that good. But he's always been a massive influence on me. He's always done the job with real flair and imagination, which I think is something at the commercial bar that's actually quite rare. Often we're sort of wading through treacle. It's quite a sort of technocratic job in some ways. But there are some people who rise above that and do the job in a slightly more spectacular way. And he's certainly one of them. And he remains a great friend and mentor. The other two I want to mention are Andrew Spink, you see, who's until recently head of former head of Outer Temple, chairman of, of Combar, very well-known, powerful advocate in the commercial and chancery courts. And he's just been a great influence on me and a, and a great friend. Like Richard, I've worked with him a lot over the years. And, and he taught me a lot about not only how to do the job in a technical way, but also how to conduct yourself as a barrister how to relate to the rest of the profession and also the, the other related professions as well. A strong sense of ethics and integrity. And he, he's taught me a lot about doing the job in the right way. And the final person I want to mention is Richard Lissack, you see, who's now at Fountain Court and really is one of the doyens of the, of the bar. And he's someone who I work with a lot, particularly when I was junior, some of the first commercial cases I did or regulatory cases. Just the most beautiful advocate and such an incredibly impressive man. And, you know, for my part, a good friend as well. And again, just someone operating at the very highest level that taught me a lot about how to do the job, really. So those three sort of stand out. One other, I suppose I should mention, Andrew Short QC, my former roommate in Outer Temple, who's been a, a great influence as well very funny and very clever man sort of in many ways his talents I think are purposefully understated by him he sort of you know keeps his fire under a bushel so to speak but he's anyone who knows him will know the first class advocate and a super barrister and um, has been a great friend over the years that's still a list of uh, mentors I've got to say for us and I, I'm glad that you shouted out all of those people, because they're all exceptional and clearly have been very important and remain important to you in your career and in your life. Just sort of looking at it in a different, in a slightly different topic. Now, just, just moving on. I mean, you've got a very broad commercial practice and you cover lots of important areas and you've been involved in a number of important cases, you know, several important reported cases. If we're looking at international arbitration as a discipline, and that's obviously an area in which you do have a significant expertise and, and experience. How did you first come into arbitration? Was it literally a case of you were a junior on a case that involved arbitration and then that led to an interest in the practice area? Yeah, so like I suspect like lots of people who do this sort of work, you're first introduced to it either in pupillage or shortly thereafter. And for me, I was as a pupil with Robert Temming QC, who's now at Quadrant, but was my pupil master at Outer Temple, a fantastic advocate and a really lovely bloke as well. He, he led me with a silk in chambers, another silk in chambers on a, on a major international arbitration involving the logistics of car transport and a very interesting Italian clients. So there's an LCA arbitration in London, lasted several weeks. And it was my first experience of being involved in a significant case, very high value, 
involving a, a large team of solicitors and barristers working quite closely together and quite intensely uh, on behalf of the client. And I have to say, I just, I really enjoyed that mm-hmm. team ethic. I mean, it's something that actually at the bar is increasingly the case that one works as part of big teams, either leading them or sort of ensconced somewhere in the middle of the pecking order, I suppose. But that sort of, you know, team, I played a lot of sport when I was younger, so sort of working in a team and, you know, enjoying the highs and lows with people is something that really resonated with me. And I think international arbitration in particular is that you're more likely not to be working in that sort of environment. So that was my first taste of it. I really enjoyed it. And in recent years, really, it's, it's in line with Chambers' work in international arbitration, been involved in a number of sort of LCI, SIAC, and ICC arbitrations. Most recently, a, a one-week SIAC arbitration. My first arbitration as a, as a silk, involving, as it happens, Indian and subcontinental clients on both sides, subcontinental arbitrators, and uh, an Indian advocate on the other side as well. So everyone was Asian, but I was the only person who, as it were, born and brought up here. But a lovely experience, my first as a QC, as I say. Well, that's a case you won't forget, the first case as a QC, and with all that cast list that you, you, you mentioned. That's going to stick in the memory for eternity. You know, just looking at arbitration, one of the things that, you know, we know it's that it's a very prevalent form of dispute resolution, but it has its shortcomings. It can certainly be improved. Are there a couple of areas, let me just pluck in a couple of areas that you think are particularly ripe for reforming arbitration so the process is the best form of itself? Yeah, that's a good question. I do, I do think, first of all, I think there are lots of things that are fantastic about arbitration. It is it tends to be quicker, may or may not be cheaper, depending on the way in which the, the matters run. But it's, you know, and obviously the confidentiality provisions make it a good forum for, for certain clients to resolve their disputes without the matter being aired in public. So it has lots to commend itself. But there are probably, like any process, areas where it could be improved. I mean, I, I think one thing that's always struck me is the risk of, of bias, actual or perceived, on the part of, of the tribunal. And that risk that, you know, the relationship between firms and barristers on the one side who are acting for parties and then are certain arbitrators on the other can be a healthy one, but also there's the risk that it can damage the reputation of arbitration. I've had it, as no doubt you have, where, you know, the client's jumping up and down and red hot mad because they they feel that the arbitrator chosen by the other parties, you know, obviously being partial. And that is, may or may not be the case, but it's something that I think is a bit of a conundrum, really. And I wonder whether the rules around choice of arbitrators and repeat instructions, etc., might be capable of being revised and looked at. I don't, I don't have a solution to it. There'll be those who are better informed about the way the rules will work ultimately in terms of how they can be improved but I think that's an area that I'd say is currently a potential weakness in terms of the way clients perceive the process and how fair it is. No I agree with you Fahaz I think there are a number of perceptions that are that our clients have and you know let's face it you and I are just advisors in the process the consumers are the clients and sometimes they feel very happy about the process sometimes they feel very shortchanged about it for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. And I agree. I mean, there's no easy solution, but it's important we talk about these issues. 
And it's also important that we, that we talk about one of the other issues, which sort of, as I said, underpins one of the reasons behind this podcast, which is celebrating and honouring South Asian Heritage Month. You and I, I will say, are very fortunate to have the best of both worlds. We have strong heritage here, and the rivers, I dare say, of Bengal run deep in our veins. I, and I think I can say that very confidently. Now, we know that diversity, equality and inclusion is very important. And it's important in every walk of life, not just in the law. And there's undoubtedly been a lot of progress in these areas over the years. But there's clearly a lot more that can be done. I mean, you mentioned Mr. Justice Saini, there's Mr. Justice Chowdhury, and there's, of course, Lord Justice Singh. And there'll be more to come, for sure. But there's clearly a lot more we can do, both in terms of gender diversity and ethnic diversity, social mobility, and all those concepts. I wonder if you could just sort of share some thoughts with our listeners as to just how important these concepts are to you personally, Fahaz. Yes, they're incredibly important. Um, I have to say they're sometimes quite difficult topics to navigate with one's peers at the bar and you know, senior members of, of law firms, those in positions of power, because it can be taken as an implicit criticism that there is an obvious lack of diversity at the commercial bar, it seems to me, particularly at QC level. And also that's aggravated when one gets to the bench. And I think people can, can be a bit defensive about these things. And whilst I think a huge amount's been done to try and improve the situation at entry level. If one looks at the statistics, so far as they're available about the bar, for example, then at entry level, gender diversity is, is strong and ethnic diversity is, is improving the whole time. I think there's a particular issue with at entry level and throughout the bar in relation to black lawyers. But looking at, for example, Southeast Asian participation at the bar is it's pretty strong certainly at an entry level and, and junior level they correspond to general population but i think one has to delve a bit deeper and face up to some of the some of the problems as they appear through the profession so i think there are three things i i'd know one is that the way in which i think people either are and or feel excluded is not exclusively a matter of one protected characteristic so I don't think it's right just to look at whether or not someone's a man or a woman. And equally, I don't think it's right just to look at whether or not someone is of an Asian heritage or, or, or ethnic white heritage. One has to look at how there's an intersectionality of different things which might combine to hold someone back or make them feel like they can't take part fully in the profession. So I think one has to look at, for example, social and economic exclusion and those sorts of issues. I think if one looks at social mobility, together with the way in which that interacts with race and gender, one gets a better feel for, a more accurate feel for how, how far we've progressed. And the second issue is, I think, really looking at the commercial bar in particular. We have statistics for the wider bar, and I think the law firms are really well ahead. You guys are well ahead of us in terms of identifying in a sort of, in terms of pure numbers, how how well you're progressing and what you can do to identify and ameliorate problems in particular areas. But, and whilst the bar has decent statistics across the profession, 
that doesn't really tell you much about what's happening in the commercial bar. And the commercial bar is such a different bar to other aspects of the profession. I and mean, one just has to look this week at the strike by the criminal barristers and you know what they're earning and, and their working conditions to understand just how different a profession it is from one end to the other. And I think the commercial bar in terms of diversity has to look at what it is doing to ensure that not only people, we're getting the right people, regardless of gender, uh, ethnic diversity and social mobility, but also how those people are progressing. I could name, you could probably name the black and Asian commercial barristers at the bar. It's pretty limited. And then you've, you've named all the, the Asian Asian judges in the short time we've been on this podcast. So there's a huge amount to do. And I think that is something which we have to tackle, really. Talk about progression within the bar and also talk about why our corner of the bar, the commercial chancery bar, is perhaps lagging behind. Yeah, I agree with everything. And what you've said is very powerful. And I think things are changing. And people like yourself, Fahaz, your progression your success, you know, breeds, you know, inspiration for young barristers coming through the system. Because if they see people like you and others, and there are quite a few I could name of South Asian heritage who are doing very well at the bar, it inspires people to think they have got a chance and and you can do well. And chambers, as you know, various chambers now are a lot more structured in how they look to recruit people. And making it a much more welcoming profession. Because I, I remember when I was a trainee solicitor many years ago, you know, the bar didn't really appeal to a lot of people because it did feel like a bit of a club. But I mean, but these barriers are breaking down and, you know, and, and you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm really happy to see your success, Fahaz, and no doubt your continued success. So Fahaz, as we now approach the end of the podcast, one of the segments which our listeners really enjoy and we know this from the feedback we get, is a bit more lighthearted discussion about some non-legal issues. So I like to ask my, my podcast guests a few sort of closing questions. Uh, the first one revolves around music. Are there any particular bands or groups or singers, particular types of music that you really enjoy? Yeah, so I've just come back from Glastonbury. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> where I was at the weekend, and I, I've got some mates from school who work in music and they invited me along and it was incredible fun as you can Fantastic, imagine yeah uh, i don't know if you went but uh, you probably saw no i didn't it, <laughs> but i watched it <laughs> video footage and it's just it's it's an incredible event incredible social event actually i think it brings people from all walks of life together in the pursuit of you know their passion for music and i think that that's just such a wonderful thing and actually and from my sort of anecdotal experience very diverse event as well but i went there it was fantastic it was great seeing paul mccartney big fan of the beatles mm-hmm, yeah. on it. my particular joy was sort of going along later on in the evening to the arcadia there's something called the arcadia which is sort of like a mini club within glastonbury and it's a giant mechanical spider which has red laser eyes <laughs> Uh, fired out sort of a uh, laser light show and also actual fire which is sort of effectively breathed out from the from the spider itself and that's uh, it sounds difficult to describe but if if people go online and google 
Glastonbury, Arcadia, they'll see the video. It's incredible. And they played mm. a lot of drum and bass and jungle music, which when I was at university in Bristol was, was, was a big thing. And so that was great, real nostalgia for me, being there with mates from my a misspent youth listening to drum and bass and, and jungle. Sort of, <laughs> I sort love of it. And variations of that. So that's a particular particular love of mine. And, and also being a kind of, I suppose, of the... People talk about Thatcher's children. I'm not. A, I'm not really one of Thatcher's children in terms of generation. I'm more sort of a Blair, a Blair babe, I suppose. Mm. I was growing up during mm. the era of Britpop and Blur and yeah. Oasis, so that's yeah, another yeah. another great love of mine. It was good to good to see Noel Gallagher there as well this weekend. Yeah, no, no, no. fascinating. I, I, you know, didn't know you'd, you'd been to Glastonbury, and uh, and uh, that's amazing because I've never been. You know, it's always been one of those things that you know people have said to me, oh, you know, you should go to Glastonbury, go to Glastonbury. I, I suppose the camping thing just puts me off a bit, to be honest with you, because you know you are a bit younger than me, Fahaz, and you're more adept at these things than me. But I dare say, you know, the Arcadia gig was wonderful. I mean, I just think your description there is so vivid, and our listeners will love it. And in film, are there any particular types of film that you enjoy and you like sort of going back to when you get the, the chance to? So I think amongst my friends, and, and my wife will certainly tell you, that I famously love awful films. So I'll often have to go, if I get a chance to go to cinema, go and watch things that are really, really rubbish. So I'm trying to think of a recent, you know, I'll watch all the sort of, you know, Avengers films and the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings films and things, you know, sort of action, adventure, fantasy stuff I'm really into. In terms of really decent stuff, I'm I'm a massive fan. Again, it sort of carbon dates me, but I'm a massive fan of the Star Wars original trilogy and some of the later films as well. And I've been really enjoying the sort of TV spin-offs uh, of Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi recently. And also introducing my my small kids to it as well. They're they're really getting into kind of it's amazing how that whole franchise captures the imagination of generation after generation. And my kids are certainly really into it with their lightsabers and, you know, talk of the force and all the rest of it. So that's definitely something that's important to me in terms of film, really. Oh, I love it. You know, I've got to tell you, Fahaz, just very quickly, the first film I ever watched as a kid in a cinema was my late father took me to watch Star Wars in 1977. I was eight years old and I'd never been to the cinema. And my dad took me to the cinema in Hendon in northwest London. And uh, we watched Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie in 77. And I've also been an avid Star Wars fan ever since. In fact, I've got some signed memorabilia, you know, in one of the rooms here. That's, uh, you know, I love it. I, I think Star Wars is a wonderful thing. And then, so look, the final thing is travel. Are there any particular places that you've enjoyed going to over the years, either individually or with your family? or that you'd like to go to now that we're hopefully out of the worst of COVID? Yeah, I'm a, I love traveling. And, and obviously, when you have kids, it changes in terms of limitations of where you can go and when you can go. But certainly when I was, uh, when I was younger, and still now, I'll, I'll try and visit Bangladesh as often as I can. My, my father passed away a few years ago, he's buried there. So my brother and I make a pilgrimage, which uh, we, had to, uh, we had to stay during COVID. But certainly prior to that, we went every year and we've been since COVID as well. And it's always lovely to go go back home, inverted commas, and see the family and, and see the place as well. It's changed so dramatically over the years. I mean, Dhaka in particular is just a different place, really. I think even my mum, when she goes back, and she's a native 
Bangladeshi. I think she feels like it's a foreign country to her now. So I love going back there. And I've uh, the most interesting place I've ever been, I think, is Venezuela. I've got a great friend, mm. Daryl McGraw, who's met at Oxford, an American guy. And he now works in Saudi Arabia, but he, he was working in Venezuela for a time. And he's sort of a gas and oil specialist, so hence the places he's, he's worked. I mean, he's a brilliantly fun guy, one of my great friends. And he was in Venezuela for a few years working for PwC. And I visited there and travelled around, and it was just an, you know, an incredible country, really. Chavez was still in charge, so it was operating in that unique way that it did under him. And just you know, a totally different world really to to where we are so that was fascinating a beautiful country amazing food the most brilliant beautiful people and otherwise it's just you know the usual kind of holidays as kids really we're you know going to greece again as we do every year it's sort of a become a a new pilgrimage now and you know easy stuff with small kids really so yeah looking forward to a summer of travel and you know getting back into full swing of it after covid really Fantastic. Fahaz, thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. I know our listeners will too. Many congratulations again on taking Silk this year. I'm overjoyed for you. I'm really pleased to see your success. I wish you all continued success. You know, it's just, it's just wonderful to see people like you do so well. I sincerely look forward to seeing you in person before too long. So once again, thank you very, very much, Fahaz. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for having me. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.